Good morning. <laughs> Sorry. Our text this morning is from Psalm 107. We're reading the whole thing. Um, you'll find this passage on the page 506 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert, in desert waste, finding no way to city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. They cried, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spun the counsel of the Most High. He, he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with, no, with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bounds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the door of bronze and cuts into the bars of irons. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered afflictions. They loot any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and healed them, and delivered them from their distraction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them suffer, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell all his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the, de in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves to the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. To the depths, Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They revealed and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm, bleeds, the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then, were, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired heaven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him 
in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste. Because of the evil of its inhabitants, he turns a desert into pools of water. He patched land into springs of water, and there, is there he lets hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Joshua Fleming, a pastoral intern at First Pres here in Columbia. It's a joy to be with you this morning to worship our God together. Uh, my family is not with me. I have a wife and four children who could not attend, but I, I send their greetings with me. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote this, Psalm 107. But we do know about when it was written. We know it was written after the return of God's people from Babylonian exile. And so we'll see as we, as we look at this passage, for those people who were returning from captivity, this passage, Psalm 107, would have been highly relevant for them. And I think we will find it highly relevant for all lives here in 2022. But before we jump in and begin to examine this text, please pray with me. Our God and our King, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us for all these years, that we can come and read it and study it. And I pray that it would be food for our hungry souls this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 1997 film Titanic won 11 Academy Awards and was, for about a period of 13 years, the highest grossing movie of all times. But if you think about it, it it's a little bit strange that so many people would want to go see the movie Titanic because if you know your history, well, you have a pretty good idea on the front end what's going to happen in this movie, right? But but of course, the maiden voyage and eventual sinking of the HMS Titanic is not really what the movie is about. No, it tells us the story of, of two young uh, lovers, Jack and Rose. 
And they're, they're, as we get to know them, we realize they're, they're deeply flawed characters. They make rash decisions driven by their passions and their desires. And I think we could all agree, driven by sin. And they allow their lives to, in a short time, develop into an adulterous relationship. Now, in some ways, in some ways, I think our own lives can be a little bit about like the story of the Titanic, like this movie. There are some events and some circumstances that are completely outside of our control, and yet they form the backdrop of our lives in a way that influences us very deeply. Things like icebergs or thunderstorms or inflation and recession, pandemics, the death of loved ones. These are things that we can't prepare for. We can't stop them when they arrive. All we can do is react to them when these circumstances come to our lives. Perhaps some of you here know what that's like. You know what it's like to face these circumstances of life that are out of your control such that you feel like you're on a sinking ship. But if we're honest, Often we can be like Jack and Rose in that movie. We can, we can make impulsive, bad decisions. We can lead to our own anxiety and distress. We do sin daily in thought, word, and deed, and, and we have no one to blame for ourselves for our sin, and yet sometimes these consequences, the consequences that come from our sin, well, they can leave us feeling like our very lives are falling apart. Perhaps some of you know here this morning what it's like to face the devastating effects of your own sin. So you see, both the circumstances of our lives and the effects of our sin, they can rob us of joy. They can lead to helplessness and a feeling of hopelessness. So what is the response? What are we as Christians to do in light of this bleak reality? Well, Psalm 107 makes it clear that because of God's steadfast love, we can remain ever thankful because of God's steadfast love. You probably read this as, or noticed this as it was being read, but this psalm is very much about giving thanks. In fact, the very first word in the Hebrew is a command, an imperative to give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 107 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It calls God's covenant people to remember what God has done for them in the past and to respond with thanksgiving. And it provides throughout the psalm, we'll see compelling motivation to do so. Here, right here in verse 1, we see that people are called to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his steadfast love, which endures forever. And so in our time this morning, we're going to look at this. We're going to see three ways that God's steadfast love encourages us to give thanks to him. And that is, one, God rescues his people from their circumstances. Two, God redeems his people from their sin. And three, God reverses the fortunes of his people. But before we jump into this text and examine those three points, I just want to briefly give an explanation of what this, this term steadfast love is. It comes from a, a Hebrew word that is fairly common in the Old Testament. It's found actually over a hundred times in the Psalms. And, and just like with any word in any language, when something's used very frequently, it can be very hard to pin down a precise definition or translation. I'll give you an example here in English. I can make two statements. On the one hand, I love pizza. On the other hand, 
I love my wife. Now, those two statements are, are very true in their own way, but I think you understand when I use the word love in those two statements, I mean something very different, or at least I better. <laughs> but scholars generally agree that the Hebrew word carries an idea of, of, of loyalty. This Hebrew word that we have translated steadfast love, it's, it's like a very counterintuitive type of loyalty, though. Think of how we think of, of, of loyalty. Maybe uh, a couple of examples. Maybe you think of loyalty, you would say, uh, well, we had elections a couple weeks ago. I'm a loyal citizen. I did my civic duty. I went and voted. Or maybe, maybe you said, uh, I'm a loyal sports fan. And so 12 weeks throughout the fall, I make sure I can be where I can watch the Gamecocks or the Tigers. But both of those examples, you'll notice, are, they're an example of someone, a lesser party, being loyal to a greater institution. Do you see that? So, for example, if you said, hey, uh, I actually forgot to go and vote a couple weeks ago. Well, no one from the federal government is going to show up at your door and say, excuse us. We really value your opinion. We want to know where you stand on the issues. Will you please tell us what candidates you support? It's just not going to happen. Likewise, if the kickoff is at 3.30 and you're caught in traffic and you're not in your seat when the game is about to start, they're not looking up there and saying, well, we've got to wait a few more minutes. I'm sure they'll be here in a moment. No, they start the game. We understand that those institutions don't return the type of loyalty that we give to them. And yet what we see in Scripture... What we see in the steadfast love is a loyalty that comes from the greater party, from the stronger to the weaker and lesser. This is what is so shocking about God's steadfast love. Isaiah 57, 15 says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, think of our awesome God, our creator. Catechism tells us that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That God pledges loyalty to his finite, created people. The condescension of God in his steadfast love is nothing short of staggering. But we must also notice from this text, because we want to understand the word here in its context, this is a steadfast love that, that drives God to action. Right off the bat here in verses 2, it's, it's speaking of God who has redeemed his people from trouble, who has gathered them from the lands. This is not merely a steadfast love. It's like a, a, a kind emotion or a favorable disposition. No, it is a love that leads him to do wondrous works for his people. So here in Psalm 107, we see the steadfast love of God towards his people, and it acts for his good. So having developed that definition, let's jump in and see how this steadfast love plays out in the lives of God's people. So first we want to see that God's steadfast love causes him to rescue his people from their circumstances. 
We're going to see this in verses 4 through 9, and then in 23 through 32. And as we look at this psalm, I want you to notice there are actually four different scenes that are being described. The ESV, the ESV marks them off quite nicely. It begins each scene with the word some, meaning there was some group of people, some gather. We see this repeated in verses 4, 10, 17, and then down in 23. And it helps to mark off the different scenes that are being described. Now, in each of these four scenes, there's a similar pattern that is followed. There is the introduction of a new calamity. There's a cry to God for help. Then there's God's gracious deliverance. And then finally, the people respond to God for his steadfast love. We also want to see, I want you to notice, there are two different you might call them refrains that show up again and again in those stanzas that help us see the structure of the psalm. Look with me really briefly at verses 6, then down at 13, then down at 19, and then down at 28. In each of those, we see that the people cried to God for help in their trouble and that he delivered them. Also, look at verses 8, 15, 21, and 31. And each of these, they contain this response, this call to the people for a response to God's steadfast love. So having said all that, let's look here at verses 4 through 9, this first stanza, this first scene that describes a people who are in a situation completely out of control. The iceberg has come from them, you might say. It's a group of people who were lost and wandering in the wilderness in a desert wasteland with no food, no water, no shelter, such that their faint souls were fainting within, within them. But if you look down then at verses 22, or 23, excuse me, through 32, we see another scene, and something similar is going on in that it's, it's completely out of the people's control. These are a group of people who, they do business on the sea. And that, first of all, is a little bit odd because the Hebrew people, the ancient Israelites, weren't fond of being out on the sea. They, they, the sea represented to them chaos. Sailor was an uncommon profession for these people. And the scene that is described here vividly illustrates why these people would have feared the water. We see in verses 20, or verse 25 that the storm lifted them up, the waves of the sea. They, they were risen up to heaven and then down to the depths. You get a picture of these waves tossing them about. Verse 27 says they reeled and staggered like drunk men. Both of these scenes show us a people who are helpless and hopeless against their environment. On the one hand, they're lost and wandering in the desert, wasting away. And on the other hand, they're facing the raging sea that threatens to shipwreck them at any moment. And we're not really told how these people in the first scene and in the last scene got to this place in their lives. We just know that that forms the backdrop of where they are. Perhaps you know the feeling this morning of being helpless and hopeless. Maybe you're not in a barren wilderness, but maybe you've experienced at some point in your life an unexpected diagnosis in your family. It felt like that you were wandering aimlessly through a desert. Or maybe you weren't at sea in a great storm, but maybe there was a time when you faced 
financial insecurity, layoffs, or the threat of layoffs, and you watched as everything you had built was melting away. Do you know, friends, the pressure of life bearing down on you? Can you remember a time where you experienced the dark nights, the lonely days? What do we do when we find ourselves faced with these circumstances in life? Well, we can do something. We can do exactly what they do in these scenes. In both cases, we see the people cry out to God and he delivers them from their distresses. God, because of his steadfast love, rescues his people from their circumstances. He brings them, the wanderers, into an inhabited city where they can find shelter and food. He calms the sea for those who are about to be shipwrecked. He brings them into safe harbor. What both of these scenes, um, what both of these scenes demonstrate is how God is sovereign over all creation. Over all of our circumstances, he can and does rescue his people from no matter what the forces of nature they're against. There really and truly is no iceberg too great for our God. Dear friends, this psalm calls us to remember our lives, remember the circumstances that God has brought us through, and to respond with, with great gratitude and hope for the future, because he is in control, and he is good. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to get exactly what we want, does it? It doesn't mean that we will always have a perfect situation or a perfect occupation. It doesn't mean we're going to have a perfect spouse and live in the perfect house. But what it does mean, what it does tell us is that God is working all things for his glory and for our good, and that includes our circumstances that so often seem random and out of control. Oh, friends, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. He rescues us from our circumstances. Next, I want us to examine how we see God's steadfast love causes him to redeem his people from their sin. We're going to see this in the two middle scenes of this text, verses 10 through 16, and then verses 17 through 22. And I mentioned a moment ago how there are four scenes in this part of the psalm. I want to explain a little bit more of what the structure is, what's going on here. There is a, a, a Hebrew uh, literary device, very frequently used in poetry like this, where the, the outside verses or stanzas or whatever it is kind of mirror each other. And then the inside stanzas or verses mirror each other as well. And when they use that technique, what they're trying to do is focus your attention in on the center, on the middle point. This is what they want you to see and to dwell on. So we must make no mistake, this author wants us to understand. He wants us to see that God's steadfast love redeems his people just as easily as it can rescue them from their circumstances. So if you look here at verse 10 we're going to see another group of people who is described. This is a new group who dwell in darkness. They dwell in the shadow of death. They are prisoners and captives. But unlike the previous scenes, we are here told exactly why these people ended up in this situation. Look at verses 11. For they rebelled against the words of God 
They spurned the counsel of the Most High. They knew what they were supposed to do, but instead they did what they wanted to do anyway. Does that sound familiar? Isn't it so often true that when we commit sin, it's not because we're tricked. It's not because we don't know what God wants us to do in this certain situation. We know and we choose what we want to do. We end up finding ourselves enslaved. We're in chains. But it's a result of our own rebellion against God, our spurning of his word. Now look down at verse 17. This begins the other scene, the last scene we're going to look at. It says there's a a group of people who were called foolish because of their sinful ways and their iniquities. In 18, we see this is the result of their sin again. And so what we see is these people cannot even stomach their food. They waste away almost to the point of death. I'm sure each of us here can remember a time where we were sick, we were under the weather, and if it gets really bad, sometimes you just, you can't even get out of bed. Just to get out of bed and go to the bathroom seems like too much to ask. And yet this, this is not what is being described here. This is a spiritual ailment, a sin sickness, where the weight of our transgression and guilt and shame bears down on us a burden too great to bear, and we feel sick in our bones. Do you know that feeling? David knew that feeling. He wrote in Psalm 131, My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails Because of my iniquity, my bones waste away. Do you ever feel captive to sin? Do you ever feel like no matter what you do, you will fall to the same old, same old struggle you've always had? Or perhaps you've said something or done something to a loved one. And in that moment, you could feel almost tangibly the relational tension that it brought, and it made you feel sick to your stomach. Notice that these people in this last scene, they're called fools. Have you ever said anything or done anything at school or at work? And you said later, I can't believe I did that. It was so foolish. How could I be so sinful? Well, what do we do when we face the devastating effects of our sins? I think the psalm gives us another good example in verse 13 and 19. Cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distresses. The people cried out to the Lord, and he brought them out of darkness. He burst the chains, their captivity. He heals them with his word, we see, delivers them from their sickness and their destruction. You need to hear this this morning, dear friends. Our God redeems people, his people, from their sin. And when he does, what else can we say except for what we find here in verse 22? Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. 
So we've seen how God rescues his people from their circumstances. We've seen how he redeems his people from their sin. Let's also examine how his steadfast love causes him to reverse the fortunes of his people. We see this in verses 33 down through the end of the chapter. We're kind of moving away from these four scenes we spoke about, and there's a sort of poem that is attached that talks about what God does. And you'll notice in verse, both verse 33 and 35, it begins by saying he turns. He turns something. He changes something. And in both cases, if you read on, it's not just a minor change. It's not just, well, let's give these kitchen cabinets a fresh coat of paint, and that will really brighten the place up. No, it's a very drastic change. It's a complete and total reversal. In verses 33 and 34, we see God actually... Because of the wickedness of those who are in the land, he changes a fertile land into a desert. Then in verse 35 through 38, we see him reverse a desert and parched, dry land into a place of abundance, a place of blessing and of flourishment. He is seen to establish his people in the land to give them a city, a land of their own. He makes their crops bountiful, their livestock plentiful. We see here again this idea of God's providence and sovereignty over all creation. But we notice here particularly how he seems to delight to work through reversals. He loves to do this. And it's not something we just see here only in this text but it is prominent. If you look down at verse 43, the last phrase of this psalm says, let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In the original Hebrew, that steadfast love there is actually plural. It's like saying, let them, let them consider the steadfast loves. It's a little weird in English. But it's, it's this idea that God's steadfast love, it endures forever, but it's continual, it's ongoing. And we see it manifest in many of his actions. And of course, that's the story throughout Scripture, a story of grand reversals. Think of Abraham and Sarah. They were barren, and God reverses their fortunes by giving them a son, the promised child Isaac. Think of Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And God reverses his fortunes. He becomes second in command of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Remember the nation of Israel itself. They were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord sends them Moses and he leads them out of Egypt, out of captivity, and eventually into the promised land. Remember the reversal of Hannah's situation. Do you remember Hannah in 1 Samuel? She petitions the Lord, he, he hears her. He gives her a child. He gives her Samuel, who will go on to be the great prophet who anoints the kings. So what does this psalmist call us to in light of these reversals? Well, it's interesting here, we looked at verse 43 a moment ago. Did you notice that it calls, you, it calls out to those who are wise? There's this interesting connection here between wisdom and steadfast love. If you spent much time in the Proverbs, you know that, that the 
wisdom literature of Scripture is often associated with how we live our lives. It encourages us to be wise in our pursuit of godly living. What this psalm is driving us towards, we see at the end, is, is a remembrance of God's steadfast love and his reversals on our behalf that leads to us pursuing thankful and holy lives that honor and glorify him. And that's not just a Thanksgiving Day thing. As we come to the psalm, what we see is we're called to so much more. It's not just about our feelings for God. It's, it's about how we live for him. Now, we talked a moment ago about God's steadfast love and how it is. It is more than an emotion. It is more than it leads him to action. And I think the same is being said for us in our giving of thanks to him. I mean, way back in the very beginning of the psalm, verse 2, the people are called, the redeemed of the Lord are called to say so, not just think so, not just feel so. Also notice this language that's used here. Look at verse 22. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Verse 32. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of elders. This is a thanksgiving that spills out into the way we live our lives on a daily basis. You see, all that we are, our entire lives are to be lived before our great triune God in thanksgiving to him. So friends, do you have an attitude of gratitude? Are you living a life of thankful obedience to our God? This psalm, it offers great comfort, but there's also a challenge to be noted here. It shows us that our lack of recognition of God's steadfast love in our lives and our lack of thankfulness in response to that is actually unfaithful. It's a sinful response to what God has done for this. Do not miss this. We are actually commanded in this psalm to give thanks. We must do what Paul says to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and that implies we must, we must know, we must remember the mercies of God. He continues to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as living sacrifice. All that we are is to be given to God in thanks for what he has done for us. Well, there is one greater reversal in Scripture that we did not mention, but we must not miss it as well. You recall that there is one who was rich and yet for our sake became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. There, was, there is one who was forever blessed, who took on a curse for us that we might receive God's blessing. There is one who knew no sin, and yet he became sin on our behalf 
so that we might in him have the righteousness of God. There is one who is the Lord and creator of life and who came to earth as a human and experienced death so that you and I who are dead in our trespasses and sins may have our situation reversed and may, who, may live and be alive with him. Lord, our friends, this, this psalm presents us and points us to Jesus Christ. Not only here in this section on reversals, but all throughout, even the scenes we examined earlier, because each of those scenes can depict our own spiritual condition, can they not? Have you ever felt in your life that you were lost and wondering? You open your Bible and you don't know where to turn? Have you ever felt that you were captive by your sin? There was nothing you could do to free yourself. Have you ever felt physically sick, almost to the point of death, because of your sin? Have you ever felt like your life was being lived in a great sea, in a raging storm? If you know what that feels like, if you can recall those dark nights, those lonely days, and the Lord has brought you through, then this psalm gives you a response to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his steadfast love. Our entire lives should be characterized by gratitude because of what God has done for us. But also I realize for some of us here, the scenes depicted in this psalm, they may actually match our experience right now. And that's the beauty of this psalm because Because if you're going through the hardships and turmoil of life today in this moment, if you're going through, whether it's the icebergs of life or it's the consequences of your sin, this psalm gives you great hope. It shows you how God has redeemed his people in his past. It encourages you to call out to him today in the present. Do you feel lost and alone this morning? Cry out to Jesus who is himself the way, the truth in the life. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do you feel like the waves of life are crashing down upon you? That you're being tossed about by the storm? Come to Jesus. He who is, his very words calmed the raging sea. He is our great prince of peace. Do you feel like you are held captive by sin? That you're in a dark dungeon held by chains that try as you may, you cannot overcome them, then come to Jesus. He sets the captives free. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you feel sick and wasting away because of your sin and shame and guilt? Then come to Jesus, the great physician who came that we might have life and have it abundantly. It is by his wounds that we are healed. Or maybe this morning, you're just tired. You're worn out. Maybe this morning, just getting to church was a challenge. Because you're so, you're bearing such a heavy burden from your daily life. But come to Jesus, who promises a reversal of that heavy burden. He says, come to me, all who are he- weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will take your burden upon him and give you his rest and peace. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is good news for us this morning in this text. 
Indeed, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And may our lives be characterized by thankfulness. May we be wise and consider the steadfast love of the Lord, all that he has done for us, all that he continues to do. And may we live lives of thankful obedience in response to our great God. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You are so good, Lord. You are good and you do good. In fact, we recognize that you have done all things well. And so we pray that you would make us a thankful people in response to your amazing, steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.